Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Michael Mohammed Ahmed. I'm the founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement. I'm also the author of The Lebs and the very, very, very proud editor of this book, After Australia. <laughs> um, firstly, a, a quick apology. Uh, Hannah Donnelly couldn't, uh, the Wiradjuri writer couldn't join us today um, for personal reasons, but she sends her love and her regards. And as her editor who worked with her for a year and a half on her pieces, she's actually got four pieces in this anthology. Um, they are four interconnected pieces that create an arc for the entire book so that the book reads as one coherent piece instead of 12 segmented pieces. And so if you want to know Hannah and you want to know her story, invest in the book. Um, but I am still very grateful because today I'm joined by the amazing Michelle Law, uh, who among many, many accolades is the um, creator of a single Asian female, the play, and uh, the S SBS show Homecoming Queens. And she also told me that she's working on a book, but I won't say any more than that, but there'll be a book soon, from what I understand. And uh, Dr. Rowana Gonzalez, who um, uh, finished her PhD at the University of New, New South Wales, um, but was so modest that she didn't want me to tell you that. Um, and is also the award-winning author of The Permanent Resident, which won the 2018 Premier's New South Wales Multicultural Literary Award. Welcome, Rowana and Michelle. Um, we have a very intense and important conversation to have, uh, but before we, we get stuck into it, I want to read an acknowledgement to country. The acknowledgement I'm going to read appears on the very first page of After Australia for... Um, for, just so everybody knows where this is coming from. We acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands on which we work and on which this book was produced and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We embrace the principle of First Nations first, re-centering Australian history with Indigenous histories. We recognise that Australia's migration history began and continues on stolen land that has not been ceded and that it is untenable to talk about race in Australia without situating it in the histories of dispossession and colonisation of Australia's First Peoples. Um, the first question I want to ask both of you is about how you're doing. Specifically, um, maybe we'll start with Michelle. There's so much talk, finally, about anti-Asian violence and the, uh, the desire, the real desire to stop Asian hate. So I wanted to ask how you're doing, how your family's doing, um, and how your community you feel is coping at this moment in time. I'm personally doing okay. I'm a bit tired, but I'm always tired. <laughs> uh, I think the, the instances of anti-Asian hate in Australia have been extremely telling, but I don't think shocking in any way. And I think if anyone who was shocked has sort of had their head in the sand for centuries, um, 
you know, with the rise of COVID um, over 2020, you know, you see these repeated patterns of anti-Asian violence and um, especially anti-Chinese, the Chinese virus, anti-Chinese sentiments. Um, you know, it, it was happening back when Chinese travellers first came during the gold rush two centuries ago, and you saw race riots happening in the streets all over the country. Um, I'm currently working on um, a story that explores one of those race riots in Brisbane. And to see that happening in present day, I guess, sadly, really doesn't surprise me. Um, I grew up, my family was, well, my siblings and I were born on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. It's very monocultural, regional uh, area. Um, it's predominantly Anglo-Australian. And so I grew up with very overt instances of racism in my life, um, as well as the insidious sort of microaggressions. Um, and I think, you know, moving to different cities that are sort of multi more multicultural, you things shift, but not completely. And you always have those scars part of you, and they inform every aspect of your life and how you consume the world and how you move through the world. Um, so personally, I think our family's doing okay, <laughs> um, you know, as, as well as you can be. Um, you know, how much of that is just part of your lived experience that you don't even realise. Um, and I think this movement sort of really picked up um, a lot of Asian Australian, sorry, Asian communities in New Zealand as well. There's, there's been a lot of marches there. Um, but I'm really hoping this sort of is a turning point for people realising that Asian people aren't... We're sort of seen as a very easy target because we're regarded as quite compliant and the model minority, which is true to a certain extent. But at the same time, we have to readjust our way of thinking and see how we are part of this systemic racism and this hierarchy in order to liberate ourselves from that as well. Um, I mean, this is a good opportunity. Thank you, Michelle. I, I think this is a good opportunity to point out that uh, in spite of the hardship, I think there's a lot of comfort and support for the Asian Australian community, largely because of your family and the tremendous advocacy that you do. You, and I can see your beautiful brother in the audience too, Ben. And so I just, uh, just a round of applause. I, I really think that the amazing work your family does is incredibly inspiring. And... Um, and I, I really think that in these moments of, uh, in these moments of hardship for a community, uh, solidarity is actually the only way we pull through. Um, Rowana, when me and Rowana ran into each other in the green room, she's like, is this event going to get political? Because I've got some things to say <laughs> about the way our government is handling this situation. Uh, so firstly, I want to ask you, how are you going? How are you doing? How is your family doing in Australia and also in India? Look, my family is doing okay, but I think it's more than a focus on the personal. I think we have to look at what's happening in terms of what the Australian government is doing uh, in terms of their immigration and border control policies. So I come from India. I was born and raised in India. India is a country that can't breathe right now. It is a country that can't breathe. And I would like to say to the Australian government, with no hope that they will listen to me, but I would like to make, to re record the request to say, Scott Morrison and your government, take your foot off the Australian citizens in India, in a country that can't breathe, and bring them home with, 
without punishing them and fining them this ridiculous amount of money. And so that is where I am at at the moment. And how about your family? How are your sons doing? Uh, <laughs> my sons are about to do their HSC this year, but I have yet to see evidence of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Supposedly, this kind of illusion of the HSC that I seem to recognize, but they somehow don't. Maybe that's a 17-year-old <laughs> brain. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, talking about the book after Australia, this book that we produced together and for you as contributors. I mean, you'd think from the conversations that we have. I'm an Arab Australian Muslim. You know the horrendous uh, tra tragedy and massacre that took place in Christchurch two years ago, the anti-Asian violence, the treatment of uh, Indian communities, um, and then in addition to this, the Black Lives Matter movement, the treatment of Indigenous people, uh, particularly in relation to deaths in custody. Um, uh, you'd, you'd almost think that we were the ones who were marginalised, but it turns out that when we release a book where white people's faces are scribbled on the cover. We discover who the true victim of Australia is, white Australians, because we literally got thousands of hate mail and death threats and and attacks. One one idiot even took us to the Human Rights Commission, because apparently we're a bunch of reverse racists. I wanted to ask you, since since 2020, since the since the release of the book, what has what has your experience been of its public reception, both positive and negative? We'll start with Michelle. Uh, for me personally, it's been quite positive, which has been really reassuring. Um, I think also because people aren't accustomed to me writing fiction a lot of the time, because I've got a short story in the book, um, but it's really my first love and where I sort of began as a writer. Um, I think a lot of young women, especially, had a really positive response to my story because it has a young female, young Asian Australian protagonist, and they felt as if they could really relate to her, and they hadn't seen that perspective before. Um, in terms of hate mail, I got a lot of tweets <laughs> about the cover and saying, "How could I deign to have a piece in?" Such a controversial collection, where some white people's faces are scribbled out, and I'm like, if this is the worst thing that's happened to you, <laughs> you must be having a pretty fucking good life. <laughs> so I just didn't engage with them, and I think I really experienced a lot less of the hate and abuse that yourself and and writers like Omar experienced um, because of his story, White Flu, mm. um, which I'm sure you can talk we can more talk about. A bit about that, yeah, um, but. That mostly it's online abuse. Yeah. Um, before we move to Rowan mm -hmm. and her experience, I mean, 2020 was a big year for you, Michelle. It was a challenging year. Do you want to talk about the about how you navigated last year? I mean, in the in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, COVID-19, and so much of the public attacks that you were receiving. Um, last year was quite an intense year, <laughs> in a lot of different ways. You know, personally as well as politically, for all sorts of different arts industries, as well as the world in general. Um, it was a strange time because I was living alone at the time, so I was, in, I was in lockdown alone with my cat, which was enough cause for insanity already, um, or the portrait of insanity. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there was a lot of infighting within um, the POC industry uh, and... It was sort of, 
I guess, exposing to me in a lot of ways in the sense that um, I think we all are on the same page, but we approach that page very differently. And when you have a younger generation of writers and creators who aren't afraid to say something, people who are part of the established institution find that really threatening. Um, and I think a lot of them also aren't up to speed with the current discourse when it comes to um, terminology, what living in a white supremacy means. You know, it's not the KKK, it's not Nazis. We're literally living in an institution that is built on white supremacy. Um, and I think a lot of that discourse gets lost when you rise to a position of power because you no longer have to question things because you have become the powerful. Um, and I sort of learnt that a lot of the time, the legacy that you're fighting for, you can throw under the bus and it's not necessarily what you may have started out fighting for. Mm. So if that ever happens to me, please shoot me out of a cannon, <laughs> um, straight into the sun. <laughs> uh, I'll join you. Um, Rowana, um, how, how was the reception for you with your story and, and, and the book? And we will delve into your stories in detail soon. But just the general reception and reaction that you received. Yes. Well, the people who read the story, because my story is a long story that's set in the early colony. So I know, Mohammed, the brief was write speculative fiction uh, about Australia and the future. And I thought, Mm, uh, in order to change the future, you have to tell the stories of the past in a different way. And so that's why I went back to the past and wrote um, about uh, Pashmina shawls being made by the hair of blue mountain goats um, in the early colony uh, of Australia. And I can explain that later. But again, um, I have been okay, but I know that it has been quite traumatic for... Uh, and they've carried themselves with such grace, mm. Mohammed and Omar, who have faced just this ridiculous amount mm. of hate online as well. And that is because that, that gaping wound of colonization mm. has not been allowed to heal. And so, of course, it keeps festering and festering and manifests itself in other ways. Yeah, so for me, the hate was not directly targeted at me. It was targeted at Sweatshop, which is one of the publishers of the book. So the book was published by Sweatshop, Affirm Press and Diversity Arts Australia. In fact, I've got a big shout out to Diversity Arts Australia. Are you guys here? There they are. Woo! Uh, Lena Nahalos in particular conceived this project, got the funding, she has an incredible afterword in the book, um, and, and you know, we were, we were receiving the threats as organisations. In Omar Saker's case, he's a contributor who wrote a story called White Flu, and it's about a virus, coincidentally, this is just before the pandemic hit, he wrote a, a story about a virus, a global pandemic, that disproportionately affected white people. Here's what's so interesting about the controversy about the book and that story, is they're fiction. Yeah. The book is fiction, the, the story was fiction, the cover is a fiction. It's literally a cartoon, it's a drawing. And so here's my next question to both of you. Why is it that white people, for lack of a better term, get more offended about the fiction of white people being hurt than the reality of people of colour actually being hurt? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. But can I just say one thing in relation to Omar's story? 
I think the criticism, the ridiculous threats have come from people who haven't read the story because it's such a tender story about a mother-son relationship. Mm. It's just the most beautiful tender story mm. um, about uh, parent and child. And, and so those threats, you know, you have to take them seriously because yeah. they're about your uh, life. In Omar's case, we should be clear, he was receiving death threats. And this is the thing that's so interesting about that scenario is they were sending him images of the Christchurch massacre and saying things like, you're next. And it, it goes back to the question I just asked, which is, that's a real massacre. That really happened. This is a fiction. And I, it's so bizarre to me that these people can't see the irony of them using a real massacre to play the victim of their own race. And so why do you think, what is it about whiteness as a condition that prevents us from being able to have this conversation, not with all white people, you should know that, but with white Australia mm. about the severity of this situation when it comes to conversations about race. Oh gosh, all of this just makes me think of Carrie Ann Kennelly on <laughs> Studio 10 being like, I'm not, ra you calling me racist? Um, that's my Carrie Ann Kennelly impression, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, she, she, you know, Yumi Steins was on the end of that and ended up losing her job, not Carrie Ann Kennelly. Carrie Ann Kennelly's the face of chemist warehouse vitamins. Mm. She's doing <laughs> fine. Anyway, uh, I should also start by saying that whiteness isn't necessarily just white people, you know. It is a mentality, it's a culture. You can, ha you can be white and act white and not be white if you're, like, buying into white supremacy. Oh, the plenty of Indians who are white. For sure. <laughs> yeah, big time. Chinese culture as well. Um, but um, I think it's this... I mean, it seems obvious, but when you're living in a world where you have had to question nothing, the world serves you, everything is built to service the life of you, your ancestors and your descendants, of course you're going to be absolutely terrified at something that is even barely a threat. You know, and it, the idea is that if to, for someone else to rise up, people talk about, you don't have to give up any power, it's just lifting someone else up. It actually is, you do have to relinquish some of your power. And that's part of the journey, that's part of the painful growth. And if I was someone who was in that privileged position, if I was a white cis-het man, of course I wouldn't want to do that. I'd be shitting my pants. <laughs> um, if, someone, if people who were below me were rising up because of, you know, the world is changing and, and diversity has become more of a buzzword. It's become a movement now. And so you do everything within your power to hold on to that because you're terrified. And I think that's really sad. I would agree with what Michelle has just said completely and add to that by saying uh, the, the cis-het men, the white men who, who don't buy into this kind of insecure, um, um, kind of holding on to power, and, and so, you know, they're the ones who, uh, who write those death threats, etc., to, to you and to Omar and to Diversity Arts Australia. Um, I think the ones who don't do that are the ones who are quite secure in themselves mm. and who believe that uh, their own um, positions are not diminished mm. when other people rise up. It's, it's, it's that sense of thinking in terms of abundance rather than scarcity. And so that can only happen if as individuals we are secure in ourselves and uh, we understand that that gaping wound of colonization um, is has not been healed. It, like, it will only be healed through treaty and reparations. Uh, and it's only when that happens that there will be 
a, a diminishing of threats when something like this comes out. Thanks, Rowana and Michelle. I, I want to respond to both your points. So, firstly, Rowana, um, this point on like security for white men. I remember when the Black Lives Matter movement had begun to build momentum last year. I saw a picture of a protest, and there was a white guy standing, you know, amongst the crowd, and he had a sign up that said, "I don't want to win a rigged game." You know, mm. and so I, I totally understand your position on this. And Michelle, I think what you're talking about, um, in terms of that, like if you're used to, if you're used to privilege, um, then it can be quite confronting to lose even a little bit of it. And the way we frame this in cultural theory at the moment is the statement: if you're used to 100%, 98 can feel oppressive, which is actually all we've had. Yeah. You know, we haven't actually. It's we're not even getting close to 50-50 yet. We're we're still just one or two percent along the way, and it can already feel incredibly threatening, which I think explains the rise of people like Jordan B. Peterson. I think entitlement can explain a lot and can take you a really long way. And I think the idea of a meritocracy is really toxic, and it's something that's embodied by even like a lot of people of color. I went on a date with this Asian guy the other night, and he was, and I was like, "Well, how does it feel?" Because he works in one. He, we're not dating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he works in one of the big four companies, and I was just talking to him about, you know, what was the division like in terms of race at his workplace? And he was like, "Oh, you know, like all the guys in the senior positions, are obviously white, older dudes, but you know, it's a meritocracy." And I was like, "Well, firstly, we can't date. Secondly, <laughs> secondly." This is probably why I'm single. But I was like, a meritocracy does not exist. Like, if you truly believe that the people in power are the best people for the job, and they didn't perhaps go to uni with the people who are in power, who parents, friends who go boating with each other on the weekends, like、mm. you have a legacy of privilege that got you to that point. Do you genuinely believe that you are less? Competent than people who are senior to you just because of your race.、Mm. Never saw him again. <laughs>、um, I feel like、uh, we, we've been talking already for 20 minutes, and I haven't even scratched the surface.、Um, and so I want to talk about your specific works, both of you. I'll start with Rowana, yeah, because she was making the point that、uh, when I when I approached her with the brief. By the way, I should let you know the brief for me was from Diversity Arts,、uh, looking towards the year 2050. Um, writers of colour and Indigenous writers who have to represent every state and territory in Australia, and so I literally just put together a list of my favourite writers in the country.、Um, and I remember when I gave people like Rowana the brief, they came back with、um, with their ideas. And this is what's so interesting. I get asked all the time, "What did I learn from creating After Australia as the editor?" And I have one answer, which is, "Great writers don't listen to you." <laughs> um, every writer came up with their own unique interpretation of the theme, which is why it's been such a versatile and very positively received book、uh, by the reading community. And so, I wanted to, to ask you about your piece, and I want I want you to specifically talk to your, talk to us about your research, because it's a very thoroughly researched and and it's a creative piece, but it's an academic piece in my opinion in terms of the scholarship that's gone into creating it. And can you talk to us about what the history you're exploring is, and what it says about our future?、Mm. Thank you for that great question.、Um, I think what I was trying to do was ask the question: What if Australia in the future 
was different. It could only be different if we think of our past differently. So if we think of our past not just as uh, white people, and it's true, of course, white people came here, colonized um, indigenous First Nations communities, but also that there were many other communities that were part of uh, the early colony and even before. Um, and so to me, um, after Australia, that kind of speculative utopia has to be borderless. It has to be borderless. And for that to happen, we have to look at how borderless it was in the past. Of course, there were power hierarchies in terms of class and particularly class, but of course, race and of course, gender, sexual orientation, ability. Absolutely. But I was trying to ask myself, what if an Indian servant, of which there were many in the early colony, because a lot of the the colonizers had served in India before coming here. So India was the prime, like the prize posting uh, for the British Army and Navy. And then, you know, if you, once you'd made your money, you were just kind of sent off to Australia if you wanted to uh, make some more money, I suppose. But um, so there were a lot of Indian servants brought here by people used to being waited on by lots of uh, mames, by lots of ayahs and coolies, etc. at that time. Uh, but there were also lots of, uh, there was a lot of engagement between the non-white people in the colony, the servants, etc. and indigenous communities. So I thought, oh, what if the women had, were allowed to exercise agency in the early colony? And so I thought, oh, what if an Indian servant, a female Indian servant, and a female indigenous woman whose, whose father is Indian, but the father has um, abandoned her, what if they got together and started a business? Uh, and what if that business was about making pashmina shawls and monkey caps for uh, the market in Calcutta? Oh, then they would have to compete with the MacArthur's in Sydney and the East India Company in India, and that would be terrible. How would they subvert that? So that was how I kind of started thinking about my story. And then um, it's, it's part of a larger project I'm working on, which is a novel um, about Governor Macquarie and his real-life Indian servant that I didn't know about. And so for me, uh, these stories actually telling these stories are so crucial, so important, because then we wouldn't, have, if we knew that history, we wouldn't be thinking of Indians uh, who have Australian citizenship in India trying to come back here and thinking of them as outsiders, because they would be, you know, we've been here for longer than white colonization as well because of the various different trade links in the north of Australia, etc. So it's just about, I was trying to think of Australian history differently in order to imagine a more borderless future. Um, I have one more question about your piece, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Michelle's piece as well. Uh, what I loved about your piece is the way it cut the white gaze, white mm. mediator out of the dialogue. We all know this, whether we know it consciously or not. Yeah. The, the dialogue with minorities in Australia is always facilitated through a white lens. Yes. It's indigenous people talking to white people. It's yes. Arabs and Muslims talking to white people. Asians, Indians talking yeah. to white people. That's yes. always the way it's facilitated and it's always the way it's imagined. It's kind of pock versus white dichotomy. Yeah. Um, what I found so fascinating and compelling about your piece is this dialogue, uh, this very creative dialogue between this Indian woman and this indigenous woman. And I, I, you know, there's so much discussion right now in Australia and around the world about who's allowed to tell whose story. And I, I, I think you're one of the, somebody that's very inspiring because you've been very good at navigating that space, how you have a 
culture, a dialogue with, uh, with First Nations people um, without overstepping yeah. your boundary. And yeah. so I wanted to ask you, how do you navigate that space? And what advice do you have for people of colour? In the case of white people, I don't even want to bother. But in the case of people of colour who are in, yes. in engaging in an intercultural dialogue with First Nations people. Yeah, thanks for that great question. So the first thing that helped me was being in conversation with you, Mohammed. You were a superb editor and you looked at my work and asked me really, really important ethical questions about the characters, which helped me reframe the story in many ways. So I have to thank you first. Thank you. Well, in that case, I have to thank Hannah Donnelly because <laughs> I was on your back, but as one of my sub-editors, she was on my back. Yeah, okay, great. Thanks. We miss you, Hannah, if you're listening. Um, but Anita Heiss has just written a brilliant article in The Guardian. And she says, if you're going to write the great Australian novel, and I'm sure she also means the, make the great Australian film, TV series, short story, web series, meme, etc., you have to engage with Indigenous Australia. And not just engage in a superficial way, but actually do the work. And she said she herself, as a Wiradjuri woman, make sure she follows protocol. Uh, and you can find all of that information in, the, in her Guardian article. Uh, the, uh, the protocol she's referring to are the uh, Australia Council's protocols written by Terry Janke, who is this one of this country's um, leading indigenous pro intellectual property lawyers. So look up, the, look up the Guardian article. Read First of all, read the Guardian article. We look to indigenous writers for guidance in these matters. So, so when did the, uh, the article come on out? On the Rana? 28th of April, I think, just a few days ago, a couple of days ago, she wrote it. Um, and but she refers to the indigenous, uh, the protocols for writing, uh, for creating work using uh, the cultural IP of cultural and intellectual um, property of indigenous Australians. There are certain things that uh, Terry Janke and her team suggest that the Australia Council have adopted. The Australian Society of Authors has also come out recently with a set of um, guidelines. So, uh, and all of that has been guided by consultation with indigenous writers. And so we as writers of colour look to them first. We look to them to guide us. Um, and for me, yes, thank you. I was trying to write a story about um, uh, where it, that was not circumscribed by the white gaze. So it is about these two women who are completely flawed. They're rivals. They're constantly kind of um, being quite careful around each other because they are um, they're rivals in business as well. So they're not at all um, uh, perfect characters. Uh, but they and they I didn't want to make them kind because of, I, I think um, us as people of color we come from communities that are completely hierarchized in terms of caste in terms of class etc in terms of so many different markers uh, and so I wanted to explore the complexities within groups that are thought to be homogenous. You know how that myth of the classless Australia keeps being perpetuated on and on yeah well the myth of the homogenous migrant group is also a myth, just like the myth of the classless Australia. So it's trying to problematize that a little bit and complicate it, but also write a love story to the printing press. And so one of these women, the Indian woman, I thought, why not make her an expert compositor, someone who can manipulate the first printing press in Australia, and she uses those skills to change a governor's orders, which completely changes the course of Australian history, because in history, Governor Macquarie issued certain orders that were printed in the Sydney Gazette, Australia's first newspaper, and because of those orders, 
all of the kind of you know, the machinery of colonization was put into place, uh, legitimized by the printed word. So I, I thought, ooh, what if an Indian woman who had the skills to be a compositor could change that and could change it when her boss was not looking? Um, and she's quite manipulative like that. Uh, her heart's in the right place if she knows that um, she can make money out of it. So that's what I was trying <laughs> to do. Um, thank you, Rowana. So, Michelle, um, I'm so excited to talk about your story as well. Um, it's a pretty, look, it's a generally depressing book. You know, when you bring together 12 Indigenous writers and writers of colour to imagine the future, especially in the, in, the, in the aftermath of Christchurch in the wake of COVID and Black Lives Matter, it was not going to be necessarily optimistic. But I still have the strongest emotional soft spot for your story in particular. It was the one story that moved me in a very personal way. Uh, and I want to talk about that. But before we get to that, to why I think it's such a hopeful story, um, I want to ask you, because you, you interpreted the theme very differently to Rana, which is why the book is so special, because it's so diverse. I feel like I followed it to the word, which is my Asian student um, mentality <laughs> coming well, out. Well, tell, tell us then. Tell us, what, <laughs> tell us how you interpreted the brief and what you wrote about. Well, the brief was essentially reimagining Australia in 2050 and what the country will look like for uh, black, indigenous and people of colour living in Australia. And so... I wanted to approach it in a couple of ways, um, from a climate perspective and also from a migrant perspective. So the migrant perspective was I wanted to look at the nature in which my, migration can be quite circular and um, the idea of returning to where you've come from uh, and, and what that looks like. And I also wanted to explore the climate side of it because I feel like as someone who is a millennial, I exist in this low-level sense of existential panic when it comes to the planet. Um, and because I'm now at an age where I'm like prime childbearing age, it's like, you know, my research for this book has just been reading the news every day for the last five years and freaking out and reading climate reports and just reading what we can do and what could potentially reverse um, the damage to the planet. And when you're of childbearing age and you're a woman, inevitably the question is, will I have children? Will I not have children? Is this ethical in this world that we live in now? And I just remember feeling a couple of years ago really furious because I felt like I'd been robbed of a choice as someone who wants to be a responsible person living on the planet. And the fact that I had to think about that and that it was my responsibility, I felt was really unfair because people who'd lived before me had sort of ruined the planet and gotten it to this point. And so I was really angry. And so that was, I guess I'm angry in a lot of my work though, and I write comedy. And I think comedy is the angriest genre, um, which maybe is surprising to you, but I often find that making people laugh is a much better way of conveying your message than getting up on a soapbox because people have empathy. They, they can relate to comedy. It's something that is universal. So um, I'm a very angry person. 
Uh, <laughs> so uh, the book, the the short story that I wrote, um, it's from the protagonist. Uh, sorry, it's it's from the perspective of a Chinese Australian teenage protagonist, and she lives in Australia. She lives she lives in the western suburbs in Sydney in 2050, and it, this is post climate disaster. This was written before the bush bushfires happened. And I freaked out when the book came out because I was like, "What have we done?" <laughs> uh, and she lives in a world that is unbearably hot. You can't leave your house without、um, coming into danger with like life-threatening skin cancers. Essentially, the natural world has died. It's only the very wealthy elite that can afford things like fresh food or or have the agency to do what they want with their lives.、Um, and in her community. She is part of the last generation that is a was allowed to be born in Australia. So essentially, the world in Australia is being、um, swamped with climate refugees. So if you do fall pregnant, you're forced to terminate your child, and she is preg. <laughs>、mm. Well, I want to. Let's. I mean, that's a good place to end that point. She's preg, as in she's pregnant. <laughs> she Because, preg. You know, it's so. It's such a. It's such a tragic world, and you know, there's a growing movement. Um, of antinatalism, you know, it's wrong. It's morally and ethically wrong to bring children into the world. This is a big discussion that's being had, because、um, if you look at uh, uh, scholars like Noam Chomsky, they're arguing that we're, we're pretty much at the end and we're committed to the destruction of species now. He's specifically referring to the Republican Party in the United States when he makes that point. <laughs> but, but、um, you know, this is what I find. This is why I find your story hopeful and incredibly moving. Because when your protagonist is faced with the question, she makes the choice, and I don't want to ruin the story. It's a beautiful story that's worth reading. But she makes the choice to fight to bring the next generation into the world, even though it's a world of despair. And that's why I find it so hopeful. And so I want to ask you why that was your decision as a writer. Why is your decision to for this character? To fight to to and because it, in the world you've created, it's actually going to be very hard for that to happen. But for her to make that final decision to bring this child into the world, what is your what is the statement you're making about our future? And and even if our world our children inherit a horrible world, it's still worth bringing them into it. Why is that your why is that the position you took? I think because when it comes down to it, as a person and as a creative, I am an eternal optimist. Um, I think if you weren't, you wouldn't be a writer because it is such a difficult profession that is constantly beating you down.、Um, so there's that.、Uh, I think also, I still genuinely believe in humanity as a whole, and I think that we have the potential to still, if not reverse things, then at least change some things.、Um, but you know, obviously, it's not down to individuals per se. It's really Specific large conglomerates.、Uh, I believe in people power, and I chose that ending because read a lot about climate scientists and why a lot of them choose to have children, and a lot of them choose to because they then feel like they have a tangible stake, and that there's something. If they don't change the world, their child is going to die. <laughs> You know, it's a dramatic choice, but it's one that they've made, and I think it's really admirable because I think having a child in this world, the choice is selfish. But once you become a parent, it's nothing but selfless. 
Thank you, Michelle. I feel very inclined to invite Rowana to speak to the point as well as the mother of two sons. Oh, you don't want to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> But just on that point of um, uh, actually white insecurity and, and climate um, change and action climate change, I think political leadership would make such a big difference. You know, I mean, look at Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand and what she has done to change the discourse there. I mean, it's not, of course, it's not the only thing. Then let me ask you, I mean, I have to, because we were speaking a little bit about optimism. Who are, the, who are the leaders in this country that inspire you? Who are the, who are the politicians that you look to and go, this is the kind of person that, that inspires me, empowers me and, and gives me some hope and faith? Well, I'd say people like Mehreen Farooqi, people like... Uh, Um, Linda Burney, people, I mean, this is across the political spectrum. Uh, I can't think of. I was too thinking many. of Mahareen Faruqi as well. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of too many others, actually. I wonder why. <laughs> is it just my. I'm sure it's not just my memory. <laughs> it's um, a systemic issue. So I work as a professional writer, but in this book, I didn't write anything. I, as the editor of this book, didn't want to write an introduction or a foreword. I wanted Australians not to read my work, but to read the work that I love, to read the writing that I love. And so I didn't, I didn't write any notes. Um, I also think that's important as an editor because I think sometimes those kinds of introductions really steer the audience in a, in a way of thinking. And I really want you all to read this book and take the journey with the writers and come to your own conclusions. So I didn't write an introduction. What I did do, though, was I included an epigraph. And the epigraph I included is written by the black civil rights leader, Malcolm X. He writes, and this is the opening quote for the book, the future belongs to the people who prepare for it today. And so the last question I have for you before we open it up to the audience is, how do you prepare for the future today? <laughs> <laughs> Michelle? Oh, gosh. Uh, I guess short term, I try to live as if I am about to die. <laughs> I know that sounds really intense, but that's also how I approach work um, because you could die at any moment. <laughs> Honestly, it could happen right now. It's always in the back of my mind. It's always in the back of my mind. And so I'm like, why wouldn't you just do it? Oh, God, that sounds like a Nike ad. Um, <laughs> but um, that's short term how I deal with things. Long term is a little bit hazier. I generally always have like a five to 10 year plan in my head. But actually enacting that is quite terrifying. Um, I try to put my chess pieces in place for those things, whether they're personal or professional. Um, and in terms of um, existentially dealing with the climate, I became like a low-key prepper. <laughs> Once the bushfires happened, I was like, I'm getting laser eye surgery in case I need a nope out of here. I've got a bug out bag. I started stocking up on water and petrol. <laughs> so that's me. <laughs> um, Rowana. Um, yeah, you can die at any moment, but you can also live at any moment. And no, but that's why it all makes you live. <laughs> the thought of dying? Yes. Uh, what about the thought of living? <laughs> yeah, I guess like in my head, it's the reverse because I'm like, that's yeah, how sure. I enjoy life. Yes. Um, 
<laughs> well, I have. I also tried to make lists and be prepared, but then I forgot where I wrote those lists, and then. <laughs> But I think for me, it is the lessons of history. Always, it is to read what happened in the past, uh, in in Australia, in India, across the world. But also to learn from my elders, to learn from what has gone on in the past, in order to better prepare for the future. I mean, I can't think of any other way other than to learn from the lessons of history. Thank you, uh, Rowana and Michelle. I need to say that the way I prepare for the future is by reading After Australia, and I hope you all <laughs> grab a copy. And also, if you're interested, buy a copy for your racist uncle as well. Okay, thank you, <laughs> thank you both. Thank you, Mohammed, for absolutely fabulous um, sharing. We have we have ten minutes. Actually, we've got no, uh, eleven minutes, eleven and a half minutes to go. So let's take some questions from the audience. Um, thank you very much, the three of you, for an amazing um, discussion. I'm also an emerging writer and had had the opportunity to be mentored by Rowanna. Um, I wanted to know, uh, you know, what if the, uh, you know, a radical woman of colour who was also a mother had the opportunity to take a position of power, quote unquote, and decide the quote unquote future of Australia? What would be the first thing that she or they would do? In a speculative sense. <laughs> Gosh, you're a mother. Let, I will let you speak to this. <laughs> well, I think that's a great question, and it's lovely to see you here. Um, I think I personally am a bit skeptical about valorizing uh, gender and race and ethnicity just for just in in terms of what they are like essentially uh, because we have Kamala Harris in the US yes sure it's amazing but then we we I'm sure going to see as many on twitter have said you know a brown woman being responsible for dropping bombs on other brown people so your brownness doesn't uh, absolve you uh, i think it is about your uh, commitment to indigenous justice in Australia. You're to are you talking about in Australia? So it has to be a demonstrated track record of uh, commitment to indigenous justice first. It has to be centering of indigenous stories and then a centering of those who, who have been marginalized and, and helping everyone move forward together. Other than that, I don't know. Maybe get your children to do their homework on time. That might be one strategy <laughs> while you go and change the world. Yeah, but it's a, it's a wonderful question that we should keep in mind and think about. Yeah. That's a perfect answer. I will add, I'm reading this book at the moment, which I thought would be a difficult read, but it's actually quite inviting and engaging. It's called um, Entitled, and the, sub, the subheading is, sorry, the subtitle is How Male Privilege Hurts Women. And every chapter is short and sharp, and it's so empowering and has made me, especially if you're a heterosexual cisgender woman who dates straight men, it's such a mind-blowing re-centering and re reconfiguration of men's roles and how their entitlement gets them out of a lot of things that requires women to step up in a way that completely... It's why we're, you know, it's why the patriarchy is still here, essentially. Yeah. Um, so that's a really, I think it's by Kate Mann. It's a really good book. Um, 
A question of optimism or pessimism. I know um, you, some of you have come up against the institutions of the arts establishment last year, like Sydney Festival, perhaps. Some of you have been encroached, encroaching or felt people have felt encroached by your comments as writers. Given the established arts field, which I once belonged to a thousand years ago, how far away are we from a tipping point where collaborative work is organically developed with the understanding that you've discussed today? Does that make sense? How yeah. far yeah. away are we from this thank, tipping thank point? Thank you. I, I, the question is dearly noted. It's a good question. Do you want to answer? Well, there's a lot of collaborative work already being done. A lot of collaborative work uh, by lots of different artists across an intersectional collaboration, across an intersectional identity, kind of markers of identity. So there's already that happening. It's just that uh, which ones get legitimized by the gatekeepers. And that is like an ongoing. You have to change the gatekeepers. And I think that is a process that is in place. There's a long way to go uh, for um, revolution. But um, I think, you know, there, there's already a lot that's already happening. But that's an excellent question. Thank you. It's a really Michelle, good question. You yeah. yeah, I think um, definitely the mechanisms are in place and things are changing. And I think even in the, like the last five, ten years, things have been actively chugging along. In terms of actual change, probably like several generations from now, if not more, um, you know, that's a pretty pessimistic take, but I think it's a realistic one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, can I answer as well? Is that okay? I, yeah. Look, you know, the, the, the creation of Sweatshop, the literacy movement, it's 100% run on every level by people of colour and Indigenous people. Now, the history of Sweatshop, it's a, it's a messy history, but the way in which white institutions constantly interfered in our organisation and constantly tried to police and control us, and then when we refused to, began to spread racist rumours about us being a cult, when in fact we're just a, 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 an incorporated organisation like any other, um, has been this, the pain of my, career, my professional career. But here's the thing that I want to say, I'm not saying it to white people, I'm saying it to people of colour, my brothers and sisters in the audience. Look, I see you all on Twitter screaming at white people to change. That's not how you actually transform the world, okay? I understand that you've got anger and you've got rage and you've got to vent it. But if you look at the work of the serious civil rights leaders and cultural theorists, people like Bill Hooks, people like Malcolm X, who we've built the sweatshop model on, they never once said that the solution is to wait for white people to fix the problem. They say that the solution is for us to get together and work together in solidarity to transform the situation. So for any people of colour in the audience, this is the cult leader speaking, contact us, um, we're here for you, we're ready to stand in solidarity with you and work together, and we can do this independently and we can do this as a self-determined movement. Woohoo! I think we have time for one more question. And I would particularly like to hear from young people of colour in the audience. I can see a hand. Why are people t treated badly for their background? What a great question. Thank you. Uh, good question. Do you want to try and answer? There <laughs> <laughs> you go. Cool? Gosh. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> that is both a profound and a very difficult question at the same time. I, I, I have something to say about this, but I would like to hear you two say something first. 
I think it depends on where you are in the world and the special set of political circumstances and the history that that place has. I think in a country like Australia, people of all different backgrounds, of minority backgrounds, get treated badly in different ways. And that is dependent on the fact that they might not know someone who's from that background, they might be growing up in a family that doesn't really interact with those people or has friends from those backgrounds. And that's really true of a lot of my friends who are white. I'm often the only friend who is of an Asian background, and I find that really shocking. And you might not see that in your school because maybe your school's really multicultural and that's awesome. Um, and maybe you've got friends of really different backgrounds as well, which is like super lucky and you're going to a great school. Um, but in terms of why people are treated differently, a lot of the times it's because people are scared um, and people don't know what to do with that fear. And a lot of people need therapy <laughs> because they don't understand how to deal with their fear and they don't know how to... Um, they haven't emotionally matured into an adult yet. So they're still... They're probably less mature than you. <laughs> and I would just uh, completely agree with what Michelle is saying and add that sometimes people treat other people uh, badly when they're from a different background because they haven't listened to their story. I think you can love someone once you've listened to their story. I mean, that's not the only way to love someone, uh, but it is a pretty good way of, of sharing the story that makes, us, makes that particular person human and being willing to listen. And um, that is a really hard thing to do, actually. I should also say, you know, it also depends on the stuff that you and your friends are watching and reading yeah. and what games you're playing as well. Because when it comes to representation, like... I didn't grow up with hardly anything. And so I didn't know many people of other backgrounds until I grew up and I left home. And when you are consuming a lot of mainstream stuff on like mainstream Australian television, most of the people you're seeing are a very particular type of people and they're upper middle class, white, privileged, able-bodied, straight, cisgender people. And that is a very particular group of people that does not represent the entirety of your country that you live in. And the problem is often when you see people who are of a different background in those shows or in those books, they're written by people who are white and straight and able-bodied. And a lot of the times, guys who um, are writing characters that they don't have any real-life experience with or don't know anything about their stories, and so they misrepresent them and they make them seem really unusual and really different to you when they're actually um, not. Um, thank you, Michelle and Rowana. I, I want to just say, we're out of time. I just want to say two things in response to that really terrific question. Um, the first thing I'm going to say is really depressing. The second thing I'm going to say is hopeful, and hopefully it's hopeful enough for us to end on. You know, when I was about your age, I remember learning about cigarettes in school. Nowadays, you very rarely see people smoking, and when you do, it's quite, 
it's quite well administered and under control. But when I was growing up, smoking cigarettes was everywhere. It wouldn't have been strange if we were having this event 20 or 30 years ago, where everybody in this room would be covered in a room full of smoke because half of you would have been smoking. And our teachers, I remember our teachers telling me when I was 12 years old about all the horrible things that cigarettes do to you. And I remember so many of the kids being just downright confused. You know, they're like, "But miss." If it's so bad for you, why is it okay to do it? Why are you allowed to sell cigarettes? It was such an obvious question, such an obvious response to such a horrible situation. And every teacher that taught us about cigarette smoking was always in a situation where she didn't know. I remember they were all women, but she didn't know what to say, except too many bad people in the world. And it's really depressing to come to terms with that reality, but that's probably the most obvious answer to the question of why we live in a world that's built on misogyny, racism, white supremacy, homophobia, capitalism, because there's just too many bad people in the world. But here's the hopeful part, and this is the part we should finish on. I, I've mentioned bell hooks a couple of times. Bell Hooks is an important African American cultural theorist. She argues that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements, because degrees of literacy will determine how you see what you see. And so, the best way to combat the hatred, the fear, the bigotry is through reading, writing, and critical thinking. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.